Don't you think women have earned the right to become members? I think there are a few women, and certainly there has been a considerable amount in the press recently of possible women candidates, and those candidates certainly have, by long experience and hard work, in my view, earned the right. For years and years I've done investment work, I've been interested in all kinds of finance and so on, do the same work as the partners, if you like, and I want the same status as a partner. Why do you think so many members voted against women being admitted? Well, there's a deep-rooted prejudice in the stock exchange about women members, which of course is utterly ridiculous. I, I can't... I, I've, well, I suppose it's a dyed in wood, they've kept it as a masculine world and they want to continue so. What about the reasons they give them for not allowing women? There are no women's lavatories, you might hear bad language. Utter rubbish. That's a report from 1967, courtesy of the BBC Archive, about the London Stock Exchange refusing access to women. In 1973, women were allowed access for the first time to trading floors. Fifty years on, things have got a little better. But men still dominate the city, and they dominate the world of startups and venture capital too. I'm Graeme Ruddick, and this is Business Studies, a podcast that takes a second look at business stories from the past. In this episode, we speak to Clara Millier, who worked in the city and then founded her own business, Equitori. As a woman who worked in the city and then a female entrepreneur, that makes her a pretty unusual success story for modern-day Britain. I've specialised in the field of investor relations for over 10 years now. Investor relations is not an area of specialism that necessarily anyone's heard of. It's certainly not coming out of school or university, a, a sort of generally accepted career path. And I stumbled across investor relations through working in investment banking. And it took me a while. I say it took me several years to find a career that I actually thought suddenly this is a really interesting space to be in. Um, in investor relations, you help companies manage their relationships with their investors. So generally, public companies will have someone in-house who is managing the communication to their investors. Um, and what's interesting about this type of communication is it's quite a specialist form of communication. I originally qualified as an accountant, so I do have a numbers background, but I studied English at university, so I've always much more enjoyed the communication, the bigger picture, sort of understanding of businesses and strategy. And when I found a career where you really have to communicate that very clearly, very consistently, very simply to companies, I thought, actually, I've really found a, a career I'm very passionate about. So my kind of my, my vision is really for all companies to professionalize their approach to how they communicate to investors. That's not just public companies, but also private companies can benefit from having a, a more sort of compelling equity story. And I say our name Equitory is derived from equity stories because we're helping companies articulate their story to investors. I find it quite surprising that, that almost every company invests in public relations and, and media relations. And I think that's really important from a, a reputational perspective, from a brand building perspective. 
but actually a really small proportion of companies and, and not every publicly listed company will have a professional communicating and, and managing that dialogue with with their investors and and the reason I find that quite surprising is, is how you access investors how you handle your investor relationships is is ultimately going to support your valuation and and what we see really regularly in the equity markets is that companies who communicate well will have a often trade at the premium they'll really support their valuation and companies who communicate inconsistently irregularly poorly with investors will will often trade at a discount so so that's the kind of the I suppose the need for for what we do. And then I guess the personal motivation was my mission statement at Equatory is all about changing how the city and how companies approach investor relations. There's obviously a business need for companies to professionalize the way they communicate with their institutional investors. From a personal perspective, change for me really reflects innovation. And I feel really lucky to be working in a, in a sector that is really innovating quite rapidly. There's lots of new emerging technologies to help companies identify investors and communicate with investors. Uh, there's emerging use of AI in, in terms of how investors are screening companies that you need to be at the forefront of. And, and also any market-facing job is going to be evolving very rapidly because equity and debt markets do evolve, they're volatile, they're unpredictable. So it's quite exciting to be part of something that you know is rapidly changing. And then I think the last piece of wanting to change stuff is actually the other side of equity in our name is all about having something that's fair and equal. And it was really important to me to, when I'm building a business, to create a culture that is fair and equitable. And I think having a, a really strong culture will support your diversity as a team. And I think in terms of having a diverse team, that leads to, to better ideas, generation, better decision-making, and ultimately a better service that we're offering to, to our customers and our clients. And you've built the business today so that over the last seven years, I think you now have a team of 16 people. How did you start? Because obviously it was just you. And then what were sort of the key milestones that you'd pick out along the way over the, the last seven years? So once I came up with the idea for the business, um, I came up with my brand. I had a clear presentation in terms of what I was trying to do that I could articulate to, to companies. Um, and then how I, I started was, this is pre-COVID, so I was in my home office at the time when everyone else is in offices. And it's pretty hard graft getting off the ground as a business. I think firstly, you've got to be able to take financial risk to leave paid employment and set up on your own into quite an uncertain working environment where you, you don't know, you know, you're self-employed, you're not sure yet when you're going to get paid, how much you're going to get paid, how successful the business is going to be. So, so firstly, you have to be able to, willing to take that financial risk. And then secondly, you've got to have a really thick skin. So how I started, I thought I had this amazing idea and I've got to start finding customers. So I, I don't know if you can still do this, but I downloaded my contacts from LinkedIn. I found one of the, the free state of CRM type databases, put them all in there. And I literally started at A and I worked my way down my list of contacts alphabetically and just got in touch with everyone. And I, you know, some were adjacent areas of, of the world of, in which I operate now. Some were sort of directly working for companies that were potential clients of mine. And I, I just contacted people. And I said, hey, this is what I've got this business idea. I'm starting to offer 
investor relations services on a flexible basis to companies? Can I pick your brains about this? Is this something you might be interested in? And a lot of people ignored me. A lot of people didn't reply. A lot of people said thanks, but no thanks. And, and then I think I got to an Andrew in my list and, and he replied and said, actually, this is something we're looking at right now. And we our CFO is having some conversations and, and perhaps you'd like to be part of those conversations. And, and that went on to become my first client. So I think a huge amount of perseverance and maybe a little bit of luck at being in the right place at the right time um, probably supported us getting off the ground. Um, I think you still own 100% of the business and you've grown it to 16 people without bringing in any external money. Was that a deliberate decision? I had no strategy at the start in terms of how I wanted to fund the business. And the beauty of a consulting business is it's we work on a predominantly retained basis. So we're, we're cash generative and therefore self-funding. I would add that personally, I was able to take a little bit more financial risk. I have had a decent career before this. So I was in a position where I could afford to take a little bit of risk in terms of whether the business may or may not succeed from a financial perspective. And then it's really interesting. So I get to work with lots of founders, generally of much larger companies than Equatorias. And I always, even if it's a pitch, it, it, sometimes a really nice opportunity as you're walking to the lift or at the end of a pitch to, or end of a meeting with a client to just pick their brains about, about what they've done, what their learnings are. They're running a hundreds of millions of pounds valuation sort of base company and they'll have learned a lot. And, and most founders are generally really willing to impart advice and, and talk to you. And so quite early on, I'd say probably in the first second year, first or second year of, of running my business, I pitched to a company we didn't win the work in the end but had a really good chat with the the founder and he was more interested in me and my agency and the business and what I was doing and and he it was him that actually said just hold on to your equity like too many founders dilute too too early on and and often the, the terms for those sort of early stage deals are are not favorable often the founders are not particularly experienced enough so uh, you, you quite i think regularly see founders sending out to, to really poor terms and, and massively diluting themselves and with unequal classes of shares um to because they need the cash and because they need the money so so after that conversation i i had a, a much clearer sort of perspective of actually i will try and try and retain ownership of, of the business as long as i'm able to I think where I'm at now is we were now slightly at a scale where I think some element of dilution would would make sense, um, particularly from a retention perspective. I've now got you know some of my senior leadership team who are really contributing to the growth of the business. It's really important that they're re- remunerated and rewarded properly. So so I'm now at the stage where I'm starting to think about you know how I'm comfortable diluting because I can see that that's probably going to drive faster growth within the business but it took me a long time to get there and I, I'm really glad I, I didn't dilute and and actually a lot of the institutional investors I interact with on behalf of my clients always ask me how much of the equity of your business do you own for a lot of investors you think so Andy Bruff of Schroeder's they always wax lyrical about the importance of founders and business owners having a high stake in their business even if it's a public company and they they're always quite impressed when you you say actually I still own 100% of the equity. The London Stock Exchange held an event in March 2023 to mark the 50th anniversary of women being admitted to trading floors. But despite progress since then, data suggests that women are still drastically underrepresented in the city and also the broader investment world and among entrepreneurs. 
A recent report by Dame Alison Rose, the chief executive of NatWest Group, found that a fifth of all businesses in the UK in 2022 were led by women. That's up from 16% in 2018. However, a man is still three times more likely to start a new business than a woman. The stats are horrific, actually, when it comes to access to capital for for female-led businesses. I... I went to a brilliant event at the London Stock Exchange a couple of weeks ago that was celebrating the admission of women to the trading floors. And the first thing that surprised me about that event was it's only been 50 years since women have been admitted to trading. You know, we're celebrating the centenary of, of lots of other organisations and events. And I was, I was surprised by that time frame. And I love what the LSE, the CEO, is doing um, in terms of making access to capital just more equitable, um, more broadly across private companies, but also across different types of founders. And some of the stats they talked about were were just astounding, really. So I think around 2% of VC capital goes to female-founded firms. And I think a big driver behind that is the, the, the investment committees themselves, the VCs, are predominantly male. Uh, I think it's, depending on what stats you read, 8% to 18% of VCs are female and and the same in the public markets as well actually so an amazing stat I heard on another podcast is that there are more institutional fund managers called Dave than there are women running institutional (laughs) funds in the UK and you have to think there's a connection between the capital allocation reflecting that gender split. And, and we're just talking about gender split here as well. In terms of broader diversity, I think the stats are, are even even less favourable. And I think one of the theories that they had at this event I was at was that, well, first, I say it's intimidating. If you're pitching, pitching's hard. It's, it's, it's you know, I pitch for a new business all the time. I still get nervous doing those pitches. And and if you're presenting to a single demographic that's not your own demographic, that that's hard in itself because you're naturally, you f- might feel like you're on the, the back foot. And and then one of the sort of theories that was put forward at this event was that actually the, the types of questions that are put to male founders are, are different to those put to female founders when they're pitching for capital. So men are asked promotion type questions, whereas female founders are asked prevention type questions. So an example would be instead of a promotion question would be, how are you going to grow your customer base? A prevention question would be, how are you going to retain your customers and what's your retention rate? And, and so then maybe there's some work to do in terms of just trying to address maybe some unconscious bias that, that comes out through the investment process. But I mean, my personal view is, is that I think it starts with the diversity within the financial services industry and making greater strides to addressing that. I think it's probably, there's a a huge disconnect between the advisors in the city, the investors in the city, and now the companies that they're advising. And I see this in in my line of work. Uh, Recently, I was working with a new CFO of a company who's not British from, from a European country and is a female. And she was just quite surprised by the lack of diversity amongst her UK advisor base and and was for other reasons looking to change advisors and actually said we'd like the advisors pitching to present a diverse team. And it was really interesting because having worked in the city sort of over 10 years ago now, I think a lot of the banks are making really great strides and we're seeing great progress from a diversity perspective, but there's still a really long way to go. And while some banks 
came to the pitch 50 50 male female others came with an all-male team and and it obviously did it wasn't the ultimate decision for the company but it was interesting that it was a challenge for for some of those advisors to to even manage to to address in that kind of situation and I do think you know female-led IPOs are still low in in overall numbers but are growing there's a growing number of of female founded firms that are going to grow and that are going to scale and I think the advisors particularly you know the banks do need to to sort of accelerate maybe the, the progress they're making they are making great progress but accelerate that that progress to, to to building a more diverse team to to better represent and relate to the the founders and, and the management teams of the companies they're advising what challenges have you faced as a female founder that you don't think you would have faced as a male founder probably none I, I don't know I mean there's one element at which you you stand out a little bit when you're in the minority and, and so that can work sometimes in in your favor I think the challenges of being a founder are, come down to the individual and, and your personality I think being able to have the impetus and the confidence to start out on day one takes a huge amount of, of confidence I think you know I have worked in some quite tough environments I've worked in very sort of fast-paced banking environments and and so maybe I was better prepared um in terms of just the the industry and and developing a really thick skin in terms of you get a lot of knockbacks when you start out running a business and you need to not let those those setbacks derail you you've got to stay focused on your vision on that that three to five year plan and again I don't know if this is gender specific I think all founders experience this but a lot of people love to tell you what you're not going to succeed at so when you start out people will tell you all sorts of things you know they said there's no need for what you're trying to do there's already companies trying to do this and they're bigger they're better they will tell you you're going to struggle to scale your business. They will tell you that, you know, it's going to be really hard for you to, to win business, particularly as a small boutique, so the firm at the start. And and you've got to, again, just learn to sort of block out some of that noise um, and actually use it to your advantage because some of the sort of curveballs people presented to me actually have turned out to be challenges as an agency it is hard to scale an agency and that's probably one of my biggest challenges and but I I was sort of mindful of that from the start because lots of people told me I couldn't do it and so that almost motivates me to do it but also I've always had that at the back of my mind that this is going to be a challenge for me so I'm always been thinking about how to how to address that. You touched on the city and that since you left there's been some improvements but but what was it like when you were in the city? Because you, you were in corporate broking, which then and now it has been a quite male and testosterone-driven environment. So what was it like? So corporate breaking, I guess not everyone's familiar with with the role. You sit within within investment banking, but instead you, you focus on the advising public companies and you help those companies access capital and engage with the equity capital markets. Um, and it's it's a really cool job. I, I kind of, I was put forward for it from a recruiter. And, and the reason it's great is because it's very relationship focused. So there is, you're a broker, you, you know, networking, building relationships is how you win work, how you sustain momentum in terms of work. And, and banking suited me in lots of ways because it, it is very fast paced. I really enjoyed the transactional side of things. And, and something about banking is, is you do work with, an exceptionally bright group of people and an exceptionally motivated driven group of people so it, early in your career it's, it's quite motivational to be surrounded by people who are so so driven the cons as as you can put out first firstly the hours are horrific you know when we were working on transactions we 
we wouldn't go home some evenings. And that makes it hard. If you're a parent, if you're a solo parent, um, it would be impossible to, to, to do that job. And I wonder if that's quite a big factor behind the lack of diversity. And you're right, it was not diverse as a team. I think there were maybe three female brokers, probably 30 to 40 male brokers. Um, and I, it's hard. It's hard when you're in a minority from a diversity perspective, be it gender or other sort of diversities. I think it it's hard from from that perspective. I think for me, it's I do a lot of male dominated sports. I sort of I've never had brothers growing up, but I felt like I had twenty annoying older brothers. <laughs> I had a lot of banter. That you, you sort of you, you learn to just adapt to that situation, and and perhaps coming out of that environment does mean I'm quite I'm quite tough. I you know I, I work with some challenging individuals. I work with a lot of founder-led companies. A lot of founders have very interesting characteristics and uh, sometimes very focused on and driven in terms of what they want to achieve, sometimes at the expense of the teams around them. And um, and I think maybe it kind of taught me some some really interesting skills in business working with a less diverse team that, that have sort of carried me forward into entrepreneurship. And I think banks, there's a long way to go, but they are improving on these things. I sat on the diversity committee actually when I was in banking and I think for me it was all about starts with hiring and how you hire people and and as I you know as I've experienced running my own business you often people tend to hire people who have similar backgrounds who have similar personalities to themselves and and therefore it can perpetuate a certain type of culture so starting we were trying to encourage the bank to think more laterally around where they were sourcing candidates from you know not just people who've been to university but a lot of people who who come straight out of school are exceptional candidates for for banking. Thinking about if you are recruiting at university, it's not just going for financial economics type degrees, which tend to be male dominated, but actually, you know, moving more into arts degrees because again, you know, anyone who studied English literature history will have transferable skills in, into banking as well and, and bring that different perspective and maybe stronger in certain areas like relationships and communication so it's, it's in they kind of educating at those levels I, I think is it's really helpful for any company not just investment banking there is one other thing that i wanted to ask clara millia about and that is skydiving She has done more than a thousand skydives and represented Great Britain. So why? How did she get into it? And is there a link between her love of extreme sports and being an entrepreneur? I love extreme sports. I always have. So I I skydive, I kite surf, I do sort of mountaineering, ski touring. And and I think I'm, I'm quite an engaged personality. And I tend to be very passionate, be it sort of particularly around work. And now I have a business I'm incredibly passionate about. And it's quite hard to switch off. I really struggle. And even when I was a student and studying, I was really involved in, in my degree and my, my studies. And, and so having hobbies that are quite involved themselves and, and that require a huge amount of focus is strangely helps you really switch off. And I, I've done well over a thousand skydives. I was on the, the British national skydiving team, as, as you mentioned. And skydiving is the one area where I feel it actually relaxes me. Um, because all you focus on when you're you're doing a, an extreme sport is is actually, you know, kind of you're focusing on sport. You're focusing on the moment when you're competing. You're focusing what you've got to do on that jump to, to win the, the competition. And, and you therefore don't have time to, to think about work. You, you know, when I go for a run, I'm 
I'm always thinking about work and and actually when you're doing something slightly maybe higher risk um you you really switch off so strange as it sounds having hobbies like that are are quite beneficial I think to your mental health and and it's interesting that a lot of people I interact with through skydiving it's how I met my husband or other founders of of companies or or very senior people within their particular areas of, of specialism and I think we all get that that benefit I think there's quite a lot of transferable skills actually from from sport particularly if you're kind of competing at a a national level that I really benefit from in business in particular I think skydiving is perceived as high risk I I would argue that you choose your risk level I've got friends who base jump they have one parachute the the risk of that kind of sport is is significantly higher than skydiving where you have two parachutes and and actually if you're behaving sensibly when you're under your parachute and you're landing properly then then the risk is is much lower than maybe people perceive but I think having that kind of understanding of risk and, and when to push on risk and and having the appetite to take a level of risk, but only if you really understand the implications of that risk. I think that's really benefited me working in in business. And then actually working, sort of being on the sort of national team for a year, you learn quite a lot of techniques when you're competing that that again benefit me in business. Um, One of the techniques was visualization. I worked with this amazing coach and you know he was on a much more significant global so the team than, than we were at the time and he said you know every day I spend one minute visualizing what I'm going to do on that skydive I, I run through it from jumping out of plane to, to landing on the ground and by doing just one minute a day I know that by the time I get to the competition I'm going to be five hours ahead of my competitors in terms of my ability to, to perform on that jump and and I use that technique quite a lot now in, in business. So I, I still find public speaking terrifying. I enjoy it, but it, it terrifies me. And, and actually I found visualizing what it's going to be like, putting myself on stage, mentally preparing myself for a situation or a pitch that I'm going to be in benefits me hugely um, in terms of just that, that mental sort of preparation ahead of a, a key event. And then you perform better as a result. It's interesting what you say there about risk, because it, it, it's sort of understanding risk is a theme that's come out in a number of the podcast episodes we've done and on skydiving as you say it's often perceived that, uh, some reasons that some people don't do it is they perceive that the risk is is too high but it's interesting what you say there that that is a is that a misunderstanding that actually actually if you're doing it correctly with the right precautions the risk is a lot lower than is perceived it's 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 low and and i think i i like data i like numbers and so when i was doing my training i just asked all the questions you know you i say a lot of people do a tandem skydive where they're strapped to instructor with absolutely no idea who that person is level of experience that person is and I think that's much riskier than doing it yourself and you know and, and once they start presenting the stats to you the odds of one parachute failing is around one in 800 and that's true I've, I've done I've had two fails in in sort of what, 1400 jumps so so that feels about right in terms of the risk level the odds of your second parachute failing is designed to open under stress situations so they, they were even higher in terms of the odds and the combined odds so you know it, therefore it's a very very low risk of, of both your parachutes failing um and you just you you learn to operate more safely depending on your risk appetite my husband does high performance landings and i don't do that because it, for me that's a higher level of risk than the one i want to take on and the reward and the enjoyment of doing that high performance landing that probably outweighs for me the the risk and the fear of, of sort of trying to learn how to do it myself so I, I love data and even running a consulting business we I use data as much as I can be it from marketing social media statistics to 
Um, we all track our time. And, and before I started tracking my time in business, I had no idea that we were practically paying some companies to work for them. And, and then suddenly we started getting that data and you, you start to really adjust your pricing and, and your margins accordingly. And so with anything, be it sport or be it business, having data and statistics available, it just means you can you can make much better, much more informed decisions. And I think as an accountant, I, I really love that. Do you think there's a, a link between your love of extreme sports and becoming an entrepreneur? Probably, because I think, as I said, a lot of people who skydive run their own businesses and, and have that entrepreneurial mindset. So I think it's I think for me, it's about passion. I and it took me a long time to find a career I was passionate enough about to, to want to then take the risk and, and run something myself. And that exhilaration you get skydiving is a similar kind of passion and and so maybe that just reflects my mindset and my personality but I do think yeah there are definitely parallels and that understanding and calculation of of risk that goes into skydiving has a lot of parallels to running a business and and it's probably helped me along the way and and given me the confidence as well skydiving is a male-dominated sport it's uh, an unusual sport to do it's unusual to succeed in that sport and and I think that those are all transferable skills into to being an entrepreneur and, and running the business and, and just giving you that confidence to, to kind of bite the bullet and, and set up on your own. You've been listening to Business Studies with me, Graham Ruddick. Our producer is Anushka Tate. If you want to listen to or read bonus content from this episode, then please sign up to our newsletter. There, you will find business news and analysis throughout the week, as well as bonus content from the podcast. You can sign up at offtolunch.substack.com.